This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is actually going on? What the hell is going on is we just finished the, last week the NATO summit in Vilnius, where Ukraine was kept at arm's length again. In 2008, I went to the summit with President Bush at NATO summit in Bucharest, where Bush made a big push to bring Ukraine and Georgia into the NATO alliance to, and to give them an invitation to join the membership action plan, which at the time was the path to joining NATO and would have sent a clear signal to Russia that Ukraine was coming into the alliance. And the European allies refused, and they issued a very watered-down statement that basically was taken by Putin as a green light. And it's no surprise that the two countries that he invaded since the 2008 Bucharest summit are Georgia and Ukraine. And he invaded Ukraine not once, but twice. In 2014, we didn't respond in any effective manner, and he reinvaded in 2022 with the goal of decapitating the regime and taking Kyiv and incorporating it into the Russian Empire. And so the NATO alliance had a chance to fix the error that it had in 2008 in Bucharest, and they failed. So it's always fascinating to me that people say that everything that America says and does in the world doesn't matter anymore. You know, oh, it's the Chinese, oh, it's the this, oh, it's the that. When in fact, the red lines the U.S. articulates and then defends matter enormously. And that's exactly what you laid out. So uh, what I'd really be grateful for, Mark, is that you and our former colleague, former Deputy Secretary of State, Steve Began, had a wonderful piece in the Post. You've been using your space in the Post, not just with me, but <laughs> yourself and with others to truly make what I think is a, a principal patriotic case to defend the freedom and democracy of Ukraine. And part of that is including them in our alliance. Just lay out the arguments that you made in short. So first of all, the reason why we have to bring Ukraine into NATO is because Putin won't stop if we don't. You know, he is going to use any cessation of hostilities to just pause, reconstitute his forces, lick his wounds, and then resume his invasion in a few years' time, because that's exactly what he did in 2014. He annexed Crimea and then waited for the opportunity and then struck again. He is never going to give up on that goal unless he's forced to. The only way to stop him is not to convince him one way or another that he should change his course. It's to make his goals impossible to achieve. And the only way you do that is to bring Ukraine into NATO. The other second most important reason is that if we want to have a peace deal in a year or so, let's say we, I mean, we don't want this war to go on forever. We need to help the Ukrainians 
take back as much territory as possible as quickly as possible, which means giving them all the things that they say they need, like long-range missiles, like air power and tanks, all the things that we're withholding right now, which is what you need to win a a, a counteroffensive. I don't know the last time there's been a major counteroffensive in modern times by a modern state that doesn't have air power, but that's what we're doing to the Ukrainians. Take back that territory as much as possible, as much as, as can be done, and then bring this thing to an end. We don't want this war to go on forever. Uh, The only way President Zelensky can sell that to his people if they haven't taken back every inch of their territory is if he can say, as Konrad Adenauer said to the German people in 1955 when Germany was divided, that the threat from Russia is so great that we are going to put security first ahead of complete reunification and secure the parts of, of Germany that we control and then put off full reunification for another day. If Zelensky tried to do that now and if he tried to do it without NATO guarantees, he'd be thrown out of office because the Russians have massacred innocent women and children. They've bombed schools. They've bombed hospitals, intentionally targeted them. They committed massacres in Bucha and other places. The Ukrainian people are not in any mood to compromise with Russia. So if you want a peace deal, you have to have that. And then the other reason is to save American taxpayers billions of dollars. Uh, You know, do we want to go through this again in five or six or seven years? Do we want to have to spend tens of billions of U.S. tax dollars to push back the next Russian invasion? The only way that we don't get sucked into another effort to support Ukraine against Russian aggression is if once this conflict is over, as stopped, has been fought to a standstill, is to draw a bright lead line for Russia and say, you cannot cross this. This is it. And that's the only way, the way, that's the only way we'll ever have a normal relationship with Russia, uh, is if they realize that their path to conquest is closed because there's no chance of having a normal relationship with Russia otherwise. And then finally, it's very simple. It'll strengthen NATO. Ukraine is the single most capable battle-hardened military in Europe. They are not a net security drain on the NATO alliance there, and they would be a net security contributor. And right now, they're doing NATO's job for them. They are decimating the Russian threat to Europe, and they will strengthen the NATO alliance if they're brought in. So those are the key reasons why we laid out that Ukraine should be brought into NATO. Okay, Mark, I understand all of those things, and and you know I agree with you. But for Americans who don't give a rat's ass about the future of Ukraine and who don't care whether Putin governs Moscow, St. Petersburg, or Moscow, St. Petersburg, uh, Kiev, Vilnius, Lviv, and pretty much everywhere else in the East, what's the case, what's the selfish American case for this? Well, I did a whole essay on that. I did the America First case for Ukraine, which we did a podcast and, and on. It was, and it was wonderful. And, we had a, and we'll link to our podcast uh, about that. But... Yeah. Assuming that people don't religiously listen to our every utterance, <laughs> uh, give everybody 15 seconds on that. The America first case for this is simply that it's in our interest to do it. Why do you think that Putin invaded Ukraine in the first place? It's because he perceived weakness in this administration. He watched what happened in Afghanistan, where we ran tail between our legs and handed the country over to the Taliban. And he thought, well, I can get away with it. I can invade Ukraine and I can capture it. No, I didn't capture it. So I'll just wait 20 years and keep fighting. And eventually the Americans will get tired and they'll leave and they'll hand it over to me. So weakness is provocative. And if we think that it just ends in Ukraine, Xi Jinping is watching this. 
if we're not willing to help Ukraine, which is a sovereign state, internationally recognized state, are we really going to help Taiwan, which is not? And if we're not willing to simply give American treasure to the Ukrainians while they take all the casualties, are we really going to put U.S. troops in harm's way to defend Taiwan? So you're going to have more aggression, and it makes it more likely that China will invade Taiwan. It makes it more likely that North Korea would invade South Korea. It makes it more likely that Iran will attack Israel. And so it's not just about Ukraine. It's about preventing wars that we might actually get sucked into with U.S. combat troops. So you need to restore deterrence, restore American strength on the world stage. Look, you know, I think that's a compelling case, and I think it's a compelling case for uh, you know, for for most of our leaders, unfortunately, we haven't heard that compelling case from the Republican frontrunners, or frankly, no. from the from the president of the United States. Well, that's so... the thing. He doesn't, he doesn't make the case in terms of national interest. He gave a speech in Vilnius, and he talked more about climate change than he did about why it's in our interest to win, or laying out a strategy for doing that. He just says, "We'll stand with you as long as it takes," and people look at that and say, "It's taken too long." For one thing. But can I give you some good news out of Vilnius? Yeah. Uh, the good news out of Vilnius is in in Bucharest, when I was with Bush in Bucharest at the NATO summit in 2008, it was Bush against the majority of NATO allies. He was trying to persuade NATO allies to do this, and they were not they were not going along. And he faced resistance, not from the, the usual suspects like Germany and France, but uh, from other allies. In this NATO summit, it was the opposite. Almost the entire alliance was in favor of a more robust statement, and it was the United States and the usual suspect Germany that was resisting. And our friend Yaro Trofimov, who we just had on last week, and has another brilliant piece in the Wall Street Journal. Can I just read you the first paragraph of this? Uh, Last week's NATO summit revealed a major realignment within the U.S.-led transatlantic alliance. European nations, once seen as less steadfast in their support for Kyiv and more vulnerable to Russian pressure, are determined to help Ukraine win an unambiguous victory. At the same time, the Biden administration is increasingly cautious, constrained by domestic politics and a fear of direct confrontation with Moscow. So you've had a reverse of the situation that we had in Bucharest 15 years ago, which is that the allies are actually good on this. Our European allies are almost uniformly, with a few exceptions, completely in favor of having a strategy for victory. And so you have a situation where the French and the British are finally giving the Ukrainians long-range missiles that the U.S. won't. It's not good for our country that NATO is leading and the U.S. is following, but at least that's a good sign that if we got an administration in there that saw things differently and was willing to do it, we wouldn't have to sell it to NATO. So after our long discussion about this issue, we actually do have a guest who should who be Who knows what he's talking about? Uh, who, <laughs> yes, well, no, to be fair, Mark, you actually know a lot about what you're talking about. I, of course, am just, you know, here for the free coffee. But Did you say that again? <laughs> I just want to make sure. Clara, did you get that on tape? <laughs> Drop dead. All right. Everybody, stop listening to Mark Giggle. Ambassador Kurt Volker is back with us. He's the former U.S. ambassador to NATO, the former U.S. special representative for Ukraine. He's now a distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis and a founding partner of the American University in Kiev. Here's our interview. 
Kurt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to be with you guys. Well, you're the perfect person to have this discussion because you're a former ambassador to NATO and a former U.S. Special Representative to Ukraine. How did Ukraine do at the NATO summit? Well, I don't think Ukraine did all that well because the language that NATO used to describe its future relationship with Ukraine was actually quite weak. It said that Ukraine, its future is in NATO, but it also said that Ukraine will receive an invitation when all allies agree, meaning that they don't now, and when conditions are met, meaning that there are conditions that are not currently met, but it doesn't say what those are. So it is actually, in my view, a weaker statement of NATO commitment to Ukraine than what we had for the last 15 years, which was weak enough. Uh, What they needed to get was a very firm commitment from NATO that they will help Ukraine win and bring them into the alliance as soon as it's practical to do so. A clear statement of of resolve and determination. Because the whole point of this is not to bring them in at Vilnius. No one's saying that. The point was to convey to Putin an inevitability that there is no other way this comes out than Russia losing the war and Ukraine being in NATO. So you may as well stop now. That's the message that Putin should have gotten. Instead, I think what he got was this, well, maybe someday we'll see. And I think that gives him an encouragement to keep the war going. So, Kurt, first of all, you've been on this podcast before. You know that I agree with you, I suspect. You know that Mark agrees with you. So, you know, we are what Patrick Buchanan once felicitously called the amen corner of Ukraine NATO membership. Fair enough. So what I want to do is actually start out with the negative case. Okay, there's a reason that Ukraine isn't in NATO. There's a reason that there is hesitation, not just on the part of our very wise leaders in the White House, but also, frankly, (laughs) in other European capitals. And I don't really care about the other people. Let me set that aside. There are arguments that are credible about the quality of Ukrainian democracy. There are arguments that are credible about the risks that we all incur in inviting Ukraine, a country that Russia apparently really likes to invade more than once and has, you know, irredentist claims on, those are all risks. Okay, make the case to, you know, the people who really aren't part of our corner. Sure. Um, There's a lot to unpack in the way you framed that question. And I will say that the, it was a little offensive. I'm sorry, and I no, don't mean it. Lot, I'm just really trying to. No, no. I was trying to gather together every crappy <laughs> argument there is. I wish I was writing it down. Um, but the the one thing embedded in there that I want to come to last was the most important point. The most valid point is risk. Isn't there a risk to committing to defend another country, especially if Russia is likely to attack them? Uh, yes, there is. But the whole point of NATO is to eliminate the risk by banding together, that you deter that attacker from doing so. Because frankly, until we formed NATO, that you know, this, there was a risk 
of the Soviet Union attacking or taking over Italy and France and uh, Western Germany, even though they already had Eastern Germany. Uh, so there was a threat to Europe when we rose to meet that threat by forming NATO. When Poland became free and the Baltic states, uh, these had been occupied or controlled by the Soviet Union, and we gradually allowed them to join NATO. And in doing so, we created a deterrent. We made it such that Russia would not attack them in the future. With Ukraine, we have done the opposite. We have kept them out. We've kept them in a gray zone. And that has been a signal to Putin that he can attack them at will, which is exactly what he's done. So at the end of this, and we're not at the end yet, the end of this has to be we do the same thing with Ukraine. They're a democratic country. They're a market-oriented country. They're a European country. And they will be the front line of freedom as they are now. Now, several other things in your question, I want to come back and comment on that. Um, first off, yes, Ukraine has had issues with democracy reform and corruption. So have a lot of NATO countries. It is not desirable that they do that. And we have in the past used the NATO enlargement process to try to tackle some of those things. And when those countries are in, we haven't thrown them out. And you know, we, I don't want to name names as to which countries we might be talking about, but some Western countries as well as some Central European countries have had issues with corruption and democratic practices and so forth. So yes, it's a, it's a nice to have, but the flip side of that is NATO is a defensive alliance. NATO was formed by countries banding together to make sure that no one would attack them because an attack on one would be treated as an attack on all. And we brought in Turkey when it was dominated by its own military. We brought in Portugal when it was a dictatorship. We've gone through ups and downs throughout the alliance. Today, Ukraine is doing more to defend freedom in Europe than any other NATO country. Uh, any other NATO country in Europe. I, I put the U.S. in a special category. But Ukraine is the one that is fighting on the front lines. They are innovating. They are using their troops. They're also, by the way, uh, significantly diminishing the threat to the rest of Europe that Russia presents by destroying a good section of the Russian military. And I would add that they're doing this without any uh, U.S. troops or any other foreign troops. We're just giving them the equipment to do it. Uh, so that is the situation with Ukraine. Now, a further point about that is uh, I don't know how many of your listeners might have traveled to Ukraine recently. Uh, I've been there, uh, I guess, four times in the last year. And the determination and resolve of Ukrainian people is off the charts. It is unbelievable. And it is not only about winning the war. It is also about fixing the country because they know that their country had been screwing up before all this. And now you have an attitude among people who are fighting for their lives and their families and their territory. No more. We are not going to let that happen again. I think uh, you, if, if people go in for massive corruption in the future, stealing state resources or stealing ammunition or whatever it might be, um, they're going to be strung up. There is zero tolerance for that now. So I think that we're going to see not only a democratic and militarily stronger Ukraine in the future, we're going to see a less corrupt Ukraine because the people won't have it again. So I would just add to your list also, though it's not a NATO country, we had a mutual defense treaty with South Korea when it was a military dictatorship. 
Um, yes. Because, and gave them the equivalent of an Article 5 guarantee in that as well. But let me continue the objections just to let you address them. So what about the alternatives? Why does it have to be NATO? Why does it have to be an Article 5 guarantee? We have a security relationship with Israel where the Israelis know we back them, we give them military aid, but we don't have an Article 5 agreement to defend them. Or, you know, there are alternatives like we could declare them a major non-NATO ally. We have non-NATO allies around the world where we, the U.S. Has puts its prestige behind their defense and have a strong defense relationship, but we don't give that Article 5 guarantee. Or we could just simply, you know, offer them security guarantees, like the ones in the Bucharest memorandum and when they gave up their nuclear weapons, where we promised <laughs> well, that we'll come to their defense. Yeah, you're now I've you off here. <laughs> I've given you a softball on that one. You're undermining your own argument. And I know, I know. Well, it's not my because... argument. Raising the options, non-NATO options. Why don't you address yes. them all? Yeah, so let's address them all. Let's start with the idea of security assurances that are not backed up by NATO, not backed up by treaty, not backed up by a vote in the U.S. Senate. We did this. We did this in 1995 or whatever it was, 96, with the Budapest Memorandum. We, the United States and France and the UK and Russia, agreed that we would defend and respect and, and guarantee the security of Ukraine in its currently recognized international borders, which is to say including Crimea and including all of Donbass. Everybody promised to do that. And then... In 2014, Russia violates it, and it attacks and takes over Crimea, claims to annex it. It attacks and takes over part of Donbass, and now later has claimed to annex that. And what did we do? Nothing. Nope. Nothing. And in fact, we did worse than nothing because we urged the Ukrainians, this is in 2014, we urged the Ukrainians, don't fight back. Don't don't do anything. We don't want to provoke a larger war. You know, we'll, you know, we'll push back on this. And so because of that, Russia rushed ahead with annexation and opened another front in the We East. gave them MREs. <laughs> and blankets, yes, and blankets. <laughs> um, but that was a, uh, an, an extraordinary non-response yes. to an act of aggression against Ukraine. So, so we have to be clear that a security assurance or a security guarantee, and there's a difference, the Ukrainians want to guarantee the administration is willing to talk about assurances, means nothing. Um, and I think the Ukrainians from experience know that. Now, you asked other examples. Well, you have the Israel example. So Israel is presumed to have a nuclear weapon, and it is presumed that the states that would threaten Israel do not. Oh, at least so far. I don't think we are suggesting that Ukraine should have a nuclear weapon. And we can't do anything about the fact that Russia they has millions of them. They have <laughs> so them. It we is a different it circumstance. Yeah, it is, it, a, it is a different circumstance that um, part of what has to be security for Ukraine is being included in the notion of deterrence. Uh, that you have to deter Russia from attacking. Russia does have nuclear weapons. Uh, that's one element. Now, you have the G7 coming out now in a number of countries saying that they will provide security assurances to Ukraine. But again, as an American taxpayer here, my question is, why should the U.S. give a security guarantee or assurance to Ukraine and leave our NATO allies off the hook? If we're going to do it, 
Every single one of them should do it too. We, we want a NATO commitment. And not only is that going to make sure we have burden sharing when it comes to supporting Ukraine, uh, it's also the most effective way to actually deter the conflict so we won't have to fight it. All right. So we've taken the negative perspective. Now let's take the positive perspective for a second. I And I think that that represents Mark and me. Mark had a, a wonderful piece in the Post with Steve Began making this case. You've written extensively and spoken extensively about this. But let's talk about how we finesse this. Okay, Nobody, or at least uh, nobody we know, I, I don't think, is making the case that Ukraine under attack by Russia right now should be admitted to NATO. Hey, your war is our war. Welcome. So let's talk about the shape of this commitment and the shape of this pathway forward. We agree, and I think you said it very eloquently, that the NATO summit in Vilnius was mealy-mouthed a step backwards. Okay, what does the step forward look like and we know what the obligations are for us, right? Which is, okay, we're going to defend you, Article 5. What are the obligations for the Ukrainians? What are the circumstances under which they should be admitted to NATO? Well, the first part of the question is what should we have done, which is kind of irrelevant now because we didn't. Uh, but what people were arguing for was not an invitation at Vilnius. It was arguing for a clear and resolute commitment that we will bring them in as soon as possible. And possible is to be left up to our judgment. When can we do it? As you say, no one wants to send troops to Ukraine to fight the Russians directly. We don't want to turn Russia's war against Ukraine into a NATO war against Russia. So that was not what was being proposed. What was being proposed was sending an unmistakable signal that we are going to continue to help Ukraine, they will win the war, and we will bring them in as soon as we can. That's not the message that was conveyed. And so I think it does convince Putin that, it, hey, he should keep fighting because he might still win this. Uh, that's where that is. Looking ahead now, that was what we should have done. Now we're looking ahead. The next big opportunity where this will be addressed is the Washington summit of NATO next year in July, 75th anniversary of NATO, and the last one uh, in this term of the Biden administration. Who knows if he's reelected or if we have a, uh, a different uh, president elected. But it's, it's a big summit next year. We have to be thinking hard now about what we can do to bring Ukraine in at that time. And the, the reason is because, as I argued in that piece in the Financial Times, the nature of European security has changed. It used to be that we could all live fine and peaceful and safe and prosperous uh, in the transatlantic community uh, because we were safe under the NATO umbrella and no one was going to be doing anything that would really damage us. Well, that has changed. Russia's determination to rebuild the empire and take over territories that belong to other countries has created serious diminution of security of all the NATO allies and others around the world. It has created refugee flows. It has created energy disruptions. It has created massive inflation. It has disrupted shipping in the Black Sea. Just today, the Russians again said they're not going to renew the grain deal, so they're threatening world food supplies as well. This is a bigger deal now. And the only way that this is done and never comes back is if we help Ukraine win the war 
and we bring them into NATO. So looking forward, I think we need to start talking to the Ukrainians and each other about formulas. Like what does it look like? One example that is not ripe today, but might be ripe a year from now, is to say we extend a NATO membership and Article 5 guarantee to all of the government-controlled territory in Ukraine. And the Russian-occupied territory, we are not going to join Ukraine in fighting for, but we do support its reintegration with the rest of Ukraine. Um, that's dicey, but there's possibly a way to do that. As, as we said, none of our countries want to send our own troops, but we don't want to see Putin think that he can keep fighting and take over the rest of Ukraine. There will be other ways to slice this or other formulas that we can think of, uh, but we have to be engaging in that conversation now so that we, we move this along for next year. Well, there are precedents for that. I mean, Conrad Adenauer Germany. brought Germany in when it was divided. North Korea, we're still in a state of war with North Korea. There's just yeah. an armistice. There's just a cessation of hostilities. So couldn't you exactly right. have a situation where the Ukrainians have brought this fight to a point where they can claim victory, even something short of all of Ukrainian territory taken back, and then pivot towards security, as Conrad Adenauer did, and, you know, but then they would have to, once they join NATO, they can't continue fighting for that territory. Right. They, they can't they, attack they, Russia or it would have to be sort of like the Baltics where, you know, yeah, we don't exactly. recognize Russian sovereignty over it. And one day Ukraine will be reunited. But the war is, for all intents and purposes, over. And this yeah, is the that was yeah, that was East Germany yeah. for a long time. Yeah. And that's exactly right. And the Ukrainians are not ready for that right now. They want to continue fighting to retake their territory, and they have a good chance of doing it. And in particular, the most important pieces of territory are uh, southern Ukraine, Kherson province, Zaporizhia province, and Crimea. Um, they want to get those back because they make the rest of Ukraine viable, particularly the shipping out of Odessa and Mykolaiv. So uh, the Ukrainians are not ready to do that now. But maybe by next year, we would be in such a situation. And as you say, we may never have an end to the war. Uh, Russia may decide to keep itself in a state of war with Ukraine indefinitely. And that, again, underscores the reason why we have to make sure Ukraine th that is not occupied is safe. I think people should be thinking also about what Article 5 means. Article 5 is, is very vague in the way it's written. It does not commit a country to send troops what it says is that a country that is attacked can invoke Article 5 and uh, demand you know, consultation and support from its allies, and allies should meet and decide what kind of support is appropriate. So we could decide that we're not going to send troops, but we are going to continue to send equipment and everything else that we can to help the Ukrainians, as we are already doing today. Now, there are reasons not to make this decision. It sets a precedent for future attacks against NATO. But at the same time, because it's where we already are and it's what allies are comfortable with, we could say that, well, that is going to be our response under the current circumstances under Article 5. So you could think of it that way, too. No, we don't want to water down Article 5. You want to create the presumption on the part of an adversary that yes. if they do violate Article 5, they're going to get whacked. <laughs> Right, yeah, there that are my... citizens. That's how World yeah. War II happened. Yeah, yeah, that's how. That's my view as well. But yeah. if you actually read Article Five, it is it allows a, a lot more interpretation. So let's say we get to next year. We're at the Washington summit. The counteroffensive has had 
more success than it's had so far. They've taken, let's say they've taken back, there's 20% of the country that's still occupied by Russia. They've taken back 10% and they're still 10% mm -hmm. occupied. That's just random number, but you know, they've taken mm -hmm. back some, much of the territory, but not all of it. Right now, there's no mood for compromise among the Ukrainian people. They want everything back and they want to right. keep fighting. Could Zelensky sell a peace deal that left any territory in Russian hands without a NATO Article 5 guarantee? Probably not. Probably not. You would have to have a reason to accept a ceasefire. Because remember, Ukraine had a ceasefire from 2014 to 2022. The Russians never respected it. So people were dying on a weekly basis. And then the Russians massively violated that ceasefire with their all-out invasion in February last year. So Ukrainians are not enamored of the idea of a ceasefire. They have to get all the territory back and lock it down. Added to that is the, the war crimes that the Russians commit in territories that they occupy. So it's not only about the land, it's about the people that live on the land, what happens to them. So it would have to be a significant step for Zelensky to be willing to push for a ceasefire and, you know, stopping the war where it is, NATO membership would have to be a part of that. And I would argue, too, it would probably have to be that that remaining 10% you're talking about has got to be only in the far east of Ukraine in, in Donbass, which has been occupied for eight years now. It would not be some of the newly occupied areas and it would not be Crimea. So I want to come back to Russia. It's not my view that how Moscow sees this should be dispositive in how we see this. On the other hand, the arguments the Russians have made about encirclement, the arguments that the Russians have made about their own security are not stupid. Um, they're dishonest, they're disingenuous, and I think we know that NATO doesn't represent an aggressive threat, NATO was, as you said, rightly, a defensive alliance. On the other hand, if we start, we've got, we've got the Balkans, right, where there are sufficient Russian minorities. We've got Ukraine, which Putin believes is part of the historic Russian empire, let alone the Soviet empire. What happens to Russia here? And is that a worthy question or consideration? Yeah, I, I think at some point, it hasn't happened yet, but at some point, Russia needs to become a normal country. It needs to stop wanting to be an empire, to stop thinking it should control its neighbors, take their territory, take their lives, it needs to live in peace with its neighbors and live within its own borders. This is what Russia has to do. So far, you know, what Russia has done is it's declared an intent to rebuild the empire. It has declared that it has a right to take over the affairs of its neighbors. And it believes that it has a right to govern all Russians, which, you know, is, is kind of outlandish when you think about it. I mean, there are <laughs> how many Hungarians that, that live all over uh, the Danube Basin now, or the Carpathian Basin uh, in Slovakia and in Romania. Uh, and it's very contentious in Hungary that they lost all that territory 100 years ago. But no one would accept that Hungary now says, oh, we're going to take it all back militarily. Russia has to 
accept the borders that exist. And moreover, it's arrogant to assume that Russian-speaking people want to be in Russia. Certainly, the Russian speakers in the Baltic states are quite happy being in the Baltic states. The majority of fighters in the Ukrainian military are Russian speakers. They are fighting Russia to protect their country, which is Ukraine, even though they speak Russian. So the Russians manipulate a lot of the imagery here because of they say, oh, they're all Russians. But it's really about imperialism and power. And that's what we have to get Russia to come to grips with. The days of imperialism ended with World War II, except for Russia, and they need to end there too. But isn't the only way to make that happen is to make it impossible for them to achieve those goals? I mean, without NATO you can't have peace because it'll never last. That's exactly right. They will attack again. As, and, as they, and, they, and, or... and we can't have a normal relationship with Russia one day, as distant as that may seem, unless Ukraine is in NATO, because they won't make that choice unless the other alternative is foreclosed for them, right? Exactly. Exactly. And uh, I'd say the, the, the two issues that I think we should require for there to be a normal relationship with Russia are accountability just as Germany and Japan were held accountable for what they did in World War II, there needs to be accountability for Russia for the crime of aggression and for the war crimes committed on, in the name of the Russian people. And then secondly, they have to live within their own borders in the future. Uh, no more special cases for Russia where they get to occupy parts of other people's territory and we look the other way. Kurt, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is that we haven't paid attention to what we actually want from the Russians. I mean, we have negative expectations, right? We would like you to, you know, stop invading your neighbors. We'd like you to stop trying to kill your spies overseas. We'd like you to let go dissidents from prison. But what about our positive expectations? Is there a way that this becomes a component of our efforts vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, that we get the Russians to be a better country, as you said, to be a normal country, but also that we get the Russians to actually, you know, yeah. use all that nice money they have to actually pay for what they've done to Ukraine. Those are two separate questions, but they're interrelated. Yeah. As for paying for what they've done for Ukraine, uh, I think we should be seizing the Russian central bank reserves and using them to fund reconstruction of Ukraine right away. The Russian people will never see that money, and they know they will never see that money. They view it as something that the Putin regime has stolen, and it's not theirs. We should just seize it and use it for Ukraine. In terms of additional reparations beyond that, maybe, maybe, let's see. You don't want to repeat the World War I situation where the, the burden on Germany was so high it built resentment that they wanted to attack again just for that Absolutely. Alarm. So right. you don't want to do that necessarily. Um, as far as positives of what we would want to see in Russia, I mean, it would be nice. It would be nice for the Russian government to treat its people with respect and to allow them to live in a normal democracy. But... Uh, frankly, I, you know, I would settle for if they just live within their own borders. We shouldn't have too high an expectation of what's going to happen inside Russia. We can't control it. We can't really direct it. So I think we just have to be clear about the way Russia behaves internationally that we can do something about. 
So when it comes to reconstruction, one would hope that we would have a lot of private sector investment instead of the U.S. taxpayer funding that reconstruction in addition to the Russian seized assets. Is there any chance that the private sector invests in Ukraine reconstruction without a NATO Article 5 guarantee that Russia is not going to invade again? It's going to be far more limited without NATO. There is already some willingness to invest. Uh, it's case by case determined by the nature of the project and by the geography. So, for instance, you've seen wind farms go up in southwestern Ukraine, where they're in relatively safe areas. And the nature of a wind farm is it is so dispersed that you can't really knock out the whole thing. If a missile hits it, you're going to knock out one wind turbine out of 100. Uh, so that's that's an acceptable risk. Uh, shipping is another one. I think you're going to see people invest in shipping again uh, once we get a handle on how to move goods through the Black Sea. Um, that's an area that I think people will be willing to do. Others, less so. And geographically, you're going to find, and I think the World Bank is already beginning to do this, they're starting to identify green zones, yellow zones, and red zones in Ukraine to help guide insurance companies where is the great risk where is there actually relatively little risk so that you can put up insurance? I'm trying to figure out what the right next steps are for advocates in Congress and people like you and me and, and Mark who have failed to persuade the Biden administration that the cause of Ukraine against Russia is, is just What's the right next step? Is it, you know, is it ATACMs? Is it F-16s? Is it, is this an incremental fight? What do we need to do? Well, several different things, I would say. On the military front, yes, we need to give them ATACMs. We need to accelerate the F-16s. Um, it's good that we're giving them the cluster munitions. Uh, we need to increase production of 155 millimeter shells for the HIMARS. Uh, lots of things militarily that uh, we can do to help them win the war more quickly. Uh, it's still very difficult. And the longer it goes on, the more people die. We got we to gotta help them win the war. And we should adopt the language of winning, um, not a vague as long as it takes, whatever it is. But be very clear that what's going to happen here is Ukraine is going to win. Russian forces will be defeated. Ukraine will get its territory back. That's one thing. Second thing is we should push for that on substantive grounds. We shouldn't make this a partisan issue. We should try to make this as bipartisan as we can. We actually have majorities in the public, majorities in both political parties, majorities in the House and Senate who believe that we should be helping Ukraine win and who also would agree that they ought to be brought into NATO. So we, we don't want to throw away that bipartisanship by making it more of a partisan issue. And one thing we can do to help achieve that is pass a substantial supplemental appropriation in September to cover all of next year. Uh, no reason to be having debates over this and votes in Congress and making people go on the record in Congress during a presidential election year. And then a final thing I would, I would hope that we could do is get presidential candidates from both parties to adopt the same position uh, on aid to Ukraine, that this is an important American interest that they win. Uh, those things could all be very, very helpful, and I think um, keep a little bit of stability and perspective in where this ultimately has to go. 
it seems like the Biden administration has no theory of victory or no theory for how we secure peace after victory. They're giving the Ukrainians enough weapons to not lose, but they're not, they don't seem in any hurry to win. This becomes another endless war that causes all sorts of frustration and walks right into that, that critique. And their fear is the fear of escalation. Is a quick, decisive victory have greater risk of escalation than a long, drawn-out, lower-intensity conflict? I don't see the risk of escalation the same way that people talk about it. First off, conventional. If Russia could escalate right now, they would. They are doing everything they can. The problem Russia has is it doesn't have well-trained people. It doesn't have good equipment. It doesn't have good leadership. It doesn't have good logistics. It is a shambles of a military force, and that's why they're losing. And they can't possibly escalate. Well, what if, about if they nukes? Could, they would. That's the next step. So I don't think that even Russia believes that launching a strategic nuclear exchange is a good idea. It would annihilate Russia and the Putin regime, and they know it. But I even think they don't think that tactical nuclear weapons are a good idea uh, for several reasons. It will not advance them on the battlefield. It's not going to cause Ukraine to give up. It's going to harm their own forces on the battlefield. The places where they use the nuclear weapons become uninhabitable, so you're not achieving your objective of seizing and holding territory. And it will engender a direct response, as we have warned them and others have warned them, including China and India warning them, don't use nuclear weapons. And that's because the issue is even bigger than Russia. It is we don't want to create a world where it is now a legitimate tool of warfare. Uh, so uh, there would be a big response directly against Russian forces if they were to use a nuclear weapon. So I don't see them doing that. I think another element to this, you, we talked about the nuclear side just now. The other element to this is I think the administration is afraid of regime change in Russia. Because, well, what if Russia falls apart? What if a worse person takes over? Uh, we, you know, we deal with the devil we know. I, I think that attitude is there as well. But that also falls into the category for me of we can't control this. You know, Russia is an empire internationally because of the countries that it has tried to take over. But it's also an empire domestically as it has several countries that are recognized to be inside Russian territory that don't want to be in Russian territory. And we can't control what those people think or what they do. It's going to play out inside Russia. And we should be guiding our policies based on what's good for the Western democratic values-based security community and not worried about, well, what's going to happen inside Russia. And Ukraine is part of that community. And we should be trying to secure them as well because it'll add to our own security. All right. Now, exit question. So in Vilnius, Zelensky put out a tweet saying that the language which was adopted was absurd. And the Biden administration got deeply offended by this and almost withdrew the language over that. And all of a sudden, the buzz became that Zelensky is ungrateful for all the help that the United States and its allies are giving them, and he needs to be more grateful. That suggests that what we're doing is charity. <laughs> and in your piece in the FT, it's headlined, Ukraine is doing NATO's job for it. Uh, talk to us about this whole idea of gratitude and are, is what we're doing charity or is Ukraine actually doing NATO's job for it? Well, first off, it's not charity. 
it's a shared interest. You know, we, we are not a, an island in the world. We're part of a community of countries that have a shared interest in, in democracy and in market economy and prosperity and in security. And so we have a shared interest here. And what Ukraine is doing by defending itself is also defending the frontiers of freedom in Europe and it's weakening Russia, uh, which is a threat to all of us. So it is doing it, NATO's job for it in that respect. Um, it's also extraordinarily callous, in my view, to be upset at someone who is defending their lives, their country, their family, at personal risk of being assassinated for doing so, and to be upset at them uh, for speaking their mind. Um, that <laughs> You may not agree, but to be offended that uh, Zelensky would, would express his view and his national interest, that's just incredibly callous. Now, as far as grateful, um, you know, if you've been to Ukraine and you've met with Ukrainians, including Zelensky and others in the government, they are incredibly grateful. They are incredibly grateful to the U.S. and Poland and the U.K. and all the people who have supported Ukraine. That doesn't mean that they feel the job is done and that we deserve on the pat on the back. They are still fighting for their lives. This is not over for them. Uh, we would like perhaps to put this in a box, but it's not in a box. It is a very live, dangerous conflict. And they just feel that when we say things like we do, or we have language from the Vilnius summit like we do, we really just don't understand what's going on. Well, you do. Amen, by the way. <laughs> amen to that question, which Mark uh, squeezed in as his last question, but I couldn't agree more. The whole presumption that somehow our magnanimity it, there was sort of a royal noblesse oblige you know you ignorant serfs you know how dare you ingrates not appreciate everything we've done for you and of course the we here is the u.s taxpayer not actually joe biden or jake sullivan so i couldn't agree more and thus ends my rant <laughs> it's always good to end on a danny rant well, they come often. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for your work on behalf of this really important cause. Thank you for everything you've done. I just want a quick 30-second rant. The only leader <laughs> at the Vilnius Summit whose life is in danger on a daily basis is Volodymyr Zelensky. And they're saying he's ungrateful? Give me a break. The Ukrainian military is risking its life every day to defend the frontiers of Europe from an aggressive Russia. And the idea that the, that the Biden administration, even for a nanosecond, thought that they would pull back even that language that they had deigned to give the Ukrainians because Zelensky was ungrateful and then leaked it to the media so that there were stories about that is just disgusting. I'm sorry. But, you know, spare me. We're not doing this out of charity. We're doing it because it's in our interest to do it, which Biden doesn't seem to understand because he never articulates it. And it shows that he doesn't understand it because he wouldn't be offended by Zelensky's criticism if he did understand it. Okay, there. well, that was a nice rant, but it didn't derail me from my question. Yes. Which is... 
Joe Biden, you know, didn't rise up to our expectations. That's shocking to all who know us. Which Republican exactly, other than Mike Pence, and kudos to Mike Pence, but which Republican exactly did rise up to your expectations on this front there, Mark? Oh, I'm sure that Tim Scott and Nikki Haley and others are are in are supportive of Ukraine. But I'll tell oh, you. Wait, 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 wait. Let's talk about the number one and the number two, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. How did yeah. they step up? Well, actually, I don't want to get into a whole Trump and DeSantis thing because I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to. I don't want to cry. Don't want to I don't want to cry about the state of the Republican presidential field. But I will say that Donald Trump the other day did an interview with Maria Bartiromo on Fox, and he actually said that Zelensky is a good guy because he backed me up on the perfect phone call. He could have thrown me under the bus and he didn't. So I like Zelensky. And he what would tell Putin and he would tell Putin to stop the war or else we're going to double the amount of weapons that we give Ukraine. And then he thinks he could end it that way. So if that's going to be his position, uh, then, you know, maybe there's room to evolve there. But look, we're not going to solve the Republican primary problem in, on this podcast. But I want to point out that we just had a vote on the national defense authorization bill in the house of representatives and marjorie taylor green and matt gates and all the know nothing members of the republican caucus pushed amendments to cut off all security assistance to ukraine and they got trounced two-thirds of the republican caucus voted down those amendments it was anywhere between 60 and 70 republicans who voted in favor of it 60 or 70 is too much but two-thirds of the elected Republicans in the House of Representatives are on record supporting security assistance to Ukraine at this point in the war, not just at the start of the war. And the polls show that the majority of Republicans support Ukraine. We're going to have a podcast about the polling, the IRI's polling soon. The Republican Party, there's a growing minority, and a, unfortunately a minority that is vocal beyond its numbers, but the party is pretty solid on this. And so, folks, we will end this podcast on the hopeful note that not all Republicans are idiots. And unfortunately, <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, pretty much everybody in the White House is. And on that happy note, we hope you're having a great summer. Take care. <laughs> Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.